0: To movies and tea and something of a bonus episode for our david fincher season as we are tonight going to be looking at mank his latest film produced through netflix um looking at the life of herman j mankowitz aka mank the screenwriter behind the classic citizen kane and whose contribution to the film have been greatly argued over the course of film history and we've uh, Many of her uh, Many of her uh, Wells's fans and Wells himself, seeing that he was pretty much been erased from the annals of Hollywood history, which now Fincher sets out to question um, in this biopic of sorts. Um, I'm your host as always, Edward Jones, and joining me, of course, is uh, my co-host Kim. Hello. And it's safe to say that uh, neither myself or Kim or Experts in this era, so this is gonna be really interesting. Um, the film itself uh, taking place in nineteen forties Hollywood. Uh, the film has well been scripted by David Fincher's late father, who was uh, a one-time editor of uh, Time magazine before he succumbed to cancer. Um, this is a film that had been on the cards for quite a while for Fincher at one point, uh, talking about casting Jodie Foster in the film. Um, the main reason for its big delay being that no studio wanted to allow Fincher to shoot it in black and white. Um, Netflix apparently having no qualms and allowing Fincher to shoot the film in not only in black and white, but to also add fake cigarette burns to uh, the sides as well. Even the, despite the fact he's shooting the film in digital film, so certainly when it comes to the contract of uh, that Fincher has with um, with Netflix currently, it's currently a five picture deal. Um, they're certainly giving him a lot more freedom to experiment. And so, in this, when we look at this film, I mean, this as this was originally supposed to come out after the game, so that's back in '97. Um, and as we said already, we would cast Jodie Foster and Kevin Spacey as the leads. And unfortunately, um, Pincher's father, Jack, died in 2003, so never saw the film officially get um, the green light, which it uh, finally did in, in 2019. With uh, the film now being released at the start of this month, here in December, as a early Christmas present of sorts, or so we would have thought. Uh, for all those venture fans. But um, opening thoughts on this one, Kim. I mean, obviously it's a strange new world out there for ourselves looking at 1940s Hollywood cinema for sure.
1: Yeah, I mean, Mank is really um, unfamiliar territory, right? Uh, I haven't seen Citizen Kane. Um, I don't know anything about Herman Mankiewicz. I don't know... I don't really watch a whole lot of black and white movies, even if it's a modernly shot one. <laughs> um, it's it's and and you know to be you know I, I think I mentioned it in in when we did social the social network episode that uh, I'm not really big on biopics either. So this is completely out of the left field for me, something that took me by surprise, really. Um, but I mean, we're here, very courageous, very bravely doing this. I mean, opening thoughts for Mank would definitely be... I mean, Black and White is really cool. Uh, it's... The visuals are definitely there. Um, I love the music, really, portraying that era. It really matches with the whole scene. Um, there's really nice transition of it to build kind of, like, the mood and the atmosphere of, of what's going on between the characters. Uh, it's also very wordy. Um <laughs> which <laughs> yeah, so it, it there's a lot of dialogue and a lot of people and a lot of characters. Um, it's a lot to follow, especially I think it's just because I'm not I'm really unfamiliar to the material. So there's this kind of caution to really go into this because it's first you need to kind of there's there's a lot of um, time jumping. the timeline isn't set in one era, but you know, you start at the present of where this is and then you kind of, What's really great is in those little time time moments, the little time uh, typewriter thing that goes up, it says bracket flashback, yeah. which is really nice. I mean, it's really <laughs> helpful to figure out what you're trying to watch. <laughs>
0: Yeah, we got a lot of script notes throughout the the film of what ti- what timeline we're supposed to be on, but I think there's a really fitting line at the start of this film is uh, when Mankwitch murmurs to his editor, John Houseman, here, played by Sam Trofman, that you cannot capture a man's life in two hours. All you can hope is to leave an impression of one. And I think that's pretty much what we get here. We get an impression of Mank's life. We don't really get the full story of his... His life nor his career, we just get this sort of moment in time for him, and in particular, focusing around the writing of Orson, of, um, Orson Welles's you know acclaimed uh, film, A Citizen Kane. As the film opens in 1940, with Welles being given complete freedom by RKO to. To make uh, whatever he he wants, and in turn he recruits Mankwitz, who at the time is recovering from a broken leg he's sustained in a car accident, um, to basically write the screenplay. And Mankwitz is is, at this point is kind of a drunk, basically being sent out to the Nevada desert to dry up at the same time secretly working in his own secret drinking while dictating the script to his secretary, Rita, who starts noticing a lot of similarities between the character Citizen Kane and um, the real-life uh, person, Van- William Randolph Hearst. As the film goes on, we start to see where Mank drew his inspiration from as we flash back and forth between 1940 and 1930 with... Mank uh, the 1930 timeline starting with Mank being this real sort of hotshot writer who's sort of like the toast of uh, Hollywood and able to sort of schmooze with uh Hollywood bigwigs and certainly has a lot of insider power and it's sort of through through these sort of connections is uh how he gets to know uh, William Randolph Hess and certainly his young wife um here played by a rather fantastic Amanda Siegfried.
1: Yeah, I agree. I mean I mean, Amanda Seyfried does a, her, her, her role is, is really good as Marion. And, um, I don't know. I, I, I always see her doing, um, different types of role. I mean, I have a lot of gaps in her filmography, but I mean, um, in this one, it, it was pretty surprising because I, I haven't seen her act in, um, like a bigger movie in a really long time, I feel like. I, has she been in anything bigger than... Then this movie, I don't know.
0: Yeah, I mean, for a long time she was sort of like, she's been sort of lumped in with doing kind of like chick flicks and um, yeah, I very mean, sort of I... minor things. But she has obviously done interesting yeah. bits of acting along the way. I mean, she was in Alpha Dog. Uh, yeah, she Jennifer's was in Les Miserables.
1: That's it. Uh, she was in Les Miserables. And then, um, I mean, my most recent viewing of her probably was in like the Mamma Mia sequel or something, which is not exactly, you know. A great piece of cinema. So... <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, like, there, she's, she's done a few things. And, uh, I mean, I liked her in Les Miserables. I, I think that, there, you know, Amanda Siegfried has really gone a long time, you know, gone a far away from, you know, her little role in, as the ditzy, silly girl in Mean Girls until now, right? Yeah. So, <laughs> there, she's been in a lot of different roles. And you can really see... um how she's crafted as an actress when you look at Mank even though she is playing an actress uh, a different type of actress than you know I guess what she is now um, but I mean this movie is 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 filled with really really great roles I mean you know obviously you have Gary Oldman leading leading the movie and uh, as Herman Mankiewicz. and then you know the Rita is played by Lily Collins, who I think this is one of her most sophisticated roles as well instead of playing some, Disney princess human okay. remake, you know? And and you have a lot of other people. I mean, M. N. S. A. Seyfried is, is paired up with uh, an, um, <laughs> an older gentleman, which we've discussed at length uh, in Aliens 3, Charles Dance. Uh, yes. So <laughs> there, and, and, you know, there's a lot of other people in between, um, people that I've probably seen in other movies, but I don't really remember what they've done exactly, so... Uh, but, you know, I, I, I had a, you know, there, there were a few people that I, I, I thought really match with the roles that were going here. And all of the characters for a movie that, for a biopic that runs around, you know, two hours and so. is actually really, um, I would say they're very deep. Like, all of these different characters, especially the main people that we deal with, all have rather, uh, you know, multi-dimensions of their character.
0: Yes, definitely. So, I mean, the fact—I mean, this is really Oldman's movie here. I mean, Oman himself is twice the age that uh, Manquitz was in this period, um, as he would have been the same age as Seafree's uh, character. Yet, at the same time, it's not really a concern because he's so engaging on the screen. But then, you know, try and name a time when Gary Oldman wasn't engaging on the screen is, um, and I think he just—he was just so well cast in this role of of uh, Mank, I just completely I was uh, happy to sort of buy into it and I think the fact that we not knowing you know as much as perhaps other critics of this era I mean I, I, like yourself I've never seen Citizen Kane I don't tend to look at a lot of 1930s 1940s cinema so a lot of these sort of players and um, events are sort of very sort of unexplored territory for myself so I was watching it very much... It was kind of like less as a biopic and more of just a general film experience, um, which may have been the best thing because a lot of people who are so sort of up to speed on these events are kind of a le- bit ticked to the fact that uh, they question the historical accuracy of the events portrayed within the film. So I think in this case, it's one of those uh, wonderful moments where ignorance really is bliss. <laughs> Does, even if you're watching this just as a... It's a potentially, like, a, watching, like, a fictional piece uh, based around, sort of, like, real, real events. The characters themselves are just very engaging. I mean, when you look at the founder of Metro Mayer, Mayor, uh, Louis, Louis B. Mayer, here played by fantastic artist Howard. Um, and just how he's this, sort of, like, blustering titan. And how he plays into so many of the events, including, like, the rigging of an election as he produces, like, fake... Political reels to try to swing the election campaign. Um, it's just a really, it's just, you have all these wonderful like moments in. It's just unfortunate the fact that at times it feels that the film is just very talky and it doesn't seem to be giving you anything to sort of really grasp on. It just seems to be throwing these wonderful moments out there, but it's never really fully engaging the audience. And the fact that it's also outside of Finch's usual wheelhouse, because when we look at Finch, we expect, you know, Dark and we dark settings and sort of even the most minor characters being truly memorable. Like when we look at Social Network and we think about like the snooty Dean um, who questions um, Mark and how he managed to crack the. Crack the system, all these like minor characters are still very memorable. But when we look at this film, it's lacks any of the usual sort of charms that we come to expect from Fincher's work. And I can't help but feel that this is sort of the downfall of Fincher obviously being so close to the work because of it being a screenplay by his father. That um, it's sort of this, uh, you know, desire to work with his father on a project and at the same time, sort of sacrifice his own sort of artistic style to to an extent to to get the film out there
1: i mean it's definitely not what we've typically seen of fincher but then i mean fincher isn't exactly one type like he he is he does have a lot of his stamps which we don't see as much here it's also not the type of movie that he usually makes and we said the same thing when we we looked at social network right where you know, it's hard to make a biopic act like, you know, a suspense thriller. You know, <laughs> what's the next twist around the corner, you know? Yeah. And get you on on the edge of your seat or something. Uh, but definitely this feels more like a passion project, especially even with the subject material that they're talking about. But I, I, I don't know. I mean, you, you can still see a lot of refinement in it. Um, I know... It's probably the wordiest film he's ever made, though. Probably, I think it's just, you know, respect for um, the screenplay that his father wrote. And it, it's, it's because it, it is a lot of dialogue. Uh, a lot. You know, and you're just, you're just having these quick conversations between two people. And sometimes they're pretty witty, but they're so fast. Sometimes it's hard to, like, catch on. So what's going on and you're just like oh this guy's personality is pretty good i like the style he talks you know that that's how that's my level of watching at this first watch i think yeah. that if i pick up my mood to sit down for another two hours and watch it again maybe i'll pick up a little bit more depth maybe even after watching citizen kane and watching this we're gonna have a whole different feeling of 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 the of the, this movie um but I mean, like I said, I, th- I still think there's a lot of style, but I don't, I can't define whether it's the style of the 40s, which I, I do love a lot, 30s and 40s that I do love a lot, um, including the music, including the visuals, but I do think, like, everything's shot really nice, um, from, from just how he focuses on all the characters, he takes special time so that we notice these little expressions, um, that these, this pretty much this cast is portraying and um, especially when he films gary oldman as he transitions through this writing of having that time limit and getting better from his 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 you know crippled state <laughs> bedridden state to when he's just you know a little bit more you know just walking around with a cane and being able you know all the things that yeah you know, i guess he's fighting for and all the 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 relationships he has with the people in his life, from, you know, his his brother to his wife, um, to this, you know, to with Marion and 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 the things that kind of maybe, you know, there's obviously at the end they they throw a curveball of how Hearst is actually a big part of his life as well and that he doesn't realize. So there's you know, there's there's a I don't know i mean it's not something typical that fincher would do um but to say it was like the thing i like about fincher the best is him creating atmosphere and i think that it's not really lacked here it's just kind of hidden beneath a big screenplay
0: yeah i think this is important. it just needs to have felt at times it felt like it needed to have space to breathe but It just feels, like, really so heavy in places, especially when you get into the second hour. There's so many moments where it just felt that it left, it sort of lost its breeziness that we see in that first hour. And, like, when we see, uh, when he's like, walks onto the film set and he meets Marion for the first time, and she's being uh, mock-burned on the stake, And um, the conversation that he's just having, and you've got all these, like, things that are happening around him and these is where he also meets like Charles Dances with uh, William Randolph Hearst for the first time who's almost unrecognisable his accent's so thick um, <laughs> he's got none of that uh, British charm that uh, you and Heather enjoyed so much in Alien 3 instead he's uh, this magnet that um, all these other characters are sort of spawning around and that Mank himself finds himself being you know he sort of works his way into that inner circle often and at the same time has to find a way to like work around the questionable political views of this inner circle just because so, he knows that it's sort of like the best inside track to be on especially because at this point America's going for the Great Depression Um, everyone's sort of like talking about getting out of Hollywood and heading to California and um, you've got all these sort of like underhanded tactics to try and project this sort of like um idea of sort of like wealth and status that uh these characters are so keen to sort yeah. of hang on to i mean you have the scene where mayor basically um entreats his employees to take like a 50% pay cut for eight weeks to <laughs> forestall the effects of the dwindling ticket sales and you just get this idea that mank is really just at his most comfortable when he can like you know project passive aggressive quips or just uh, yeah. enjoy a nice warm bottle and a cold quip
1: yeah but that's that's the charm of his character right and, and gary oldman does such a great job at portraying that side of this character uh really embodying that and that's what makes all this dialogue i guess so fun to listen to when you can catch on to all those little quips that he's talking about like where he's being serious and where he's not being serious and I really like it because at the end, we really pull it together when she's... Uh, when they're having this uh, conversation uh, with, with Rita, and she's she's kind of like, when are, wh- why, when are you ever serious type of thing? And that part was just so good to kind of round out this, this whole character that he is from start to beginning, even though there were a lot of um, dramatic moments, uh, especially, you know, that whole part where he he goes drunkenly into into the Hearst's uh, <laughs> party and you know he starts talking about all this stuff and and then he realizes that you know the role that Hearst plays in all of this. And I think that that especially that scene was really great because it was such a game changer in the sense that you start seeing I think that at that moment was when you realize Charles Dance is such a great actor. I know I'm fan. I I'm, I sound like I'm fangirling over him again, but it's just Charles Dance has been on my kind of just pops up on my watch list this year a lot. Um, the last movie I saw was um, at the um, was uh, the Book of Life, where I was okay. screened at um, the Festival du Nouveau Cinema, uh, and it was it was a really odd piece of cinema overall. Very you know very comparable to Manc where <laughs> It was visually really nice. There's a lot of depth to it. Uh, but, you know, he plays this really cool character as well. Like, this really, really, um, deep character with, with quite a bit of story to it. And that's the thing is, you know, Charles Dance has this kind of, and, and in this one he plays Hearst, which I really loved all the scenes that he had because there, it felt like he had so, everything he said felt like there was something more to it. There was something he was saying more and ending with, you know, the moment when, he kind of tell, pushes him out the door during that party that he pretty much barges in and destroys. Um, he pushes him out with the door talking about the the the, the, the monkey story, and <laughs> and it's it it really fits with this whole situation, right? And um, I, I just think it's a lot of things are, are are executed really well. And even though you know, I think that's one of the examples where it being wordy is there, but then some characters do have that. Um, Kind of like they have a deeper personality there's something beyond the lines they're saying that you're supposed to catch
0: yeah and it's interesting when we compare that final dinner party sequence where he's basically mank basically realized he's just the jester in this court um and we compare it to like the first party that he attends at um Hearst castle um and which also leads to that that wonderful scene where he goes to the walk with marion yeah, I'm discussing the industry and politics, and I for myself that's probably one of my favorite se- short sequences Definitely. of the year. It's just so well done, um, and the flow, the back and forth banter between these two characters is so good. But when we compare it to the, like the scene which happens before it, where you've got everyone in sort of like this grand hall, and it's so weird the dialogue and like because everyone sort of like makes these sweeping statements that everyone else in the room is on tender hooks to wait to hear for some reason they're not having their own conversations they're just all sat around listening to one person project their thoughts on a topic before another person projects their thoughts on it and it was like such a weirdly scripted sequence you would imagine that the conversation they're having would be like more smaller group than like these people addressing a whole room especially the size of this room and with the amount of people there it just seemed very odd as these aren't sort of speeches; these are just basic state statements on the current political climate, in particular, uh, you know, California politics and um, Nazi Germany. The sort of different the similarities between the socialism and communism. So, and in particular, the you know the um, the candidate Upton Sinclair, who's obviously uh, got them all quite stirred up. And who obviously becomes a sort of main focus of their wrath later in the film so but yeah I, d- I couldn't help but when I'm watching this film it's just like think would I be like getting more out of this if I was more familiar with like who all these major players are I mean obviously I know who like the head of MDM is and and it's interesting when you have like the found the founding of like the writers guild that's uh, being hinted of of here so to get these like brief glimpses of things, I just couldn't help but wonder what I have got more out of it if I knew who all these major sort of players were, if I was more familiar on like the story behind um, who Mank was and why it's so clearly so important uh, to Jack Fincher that he wrote this, that he felt that uh, Mank needed to have his story told.
1: I guess it's really for telling the story of someone's work who cuz I, I did a quickly you know, like a quick read on you know Herman Mankowitz before we did this recording and it seems that he's kind of that sort of writer or screenwriter that really helps other people polish their work and he, a lot of times he goes uncredited and maybe it's because of that that he feels like this is something that this is a story that needs to be told because of the amount of success that citizen kane got and how, you know, in reality, the 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 story is, you know, they get, the movie gets a lot of nominations, but at the same time, they also did write this screenwriting thing, which was shared between two people, when in reality, it's really supposed to be one, maybe? I, I don't know. I mean, I'm just guessing at this point. Um, I think that that's really why I feel that, I don't know if I'd get more out of the story, but it'd be really nice to see where things are coming from if we, you know, you go and watch Citizen Kane or, um, you know, just know this story a little bit better, uh, just going in because then all these characters kind of make sense and you'd see this, you know, this I guess I guess the vision of of, of Citizen Kane and how it relates to these characters and how what and how well they relate to these characters, I guess, because you're we're obviously, you know, I mean, I don't expect it, you know, I never expect anything like biopics or whatever to be super, you know, everything historically accurate. Um, but at the same time, I, it, it would be interesting to see how it compares, right? And how you'd feel about it at the end.
0: I think the, the problem is that I can obviously see where Fincher starts and his father begins. Um, in terms of like the screenplay, because Fincher's old Fincher's usual visual pl- flair is there, even if mm. we're obviously being presented in black and white, and it's certainly a lot more brighter. You can obviously compare this to uh, the likes of um, Benjamin Badham, to that extent, mm. um, which was another of his sort of like rare step away from the dark, gritty suburban landscapes that he loves to uh, sh- to dwell in so much, and. Yeah, it just felt that while well, this film is sort of like very beautiful to look at, it just seemed to lack a lot of heart. Um, there's a lot of style on on the surface, but under the depth, it just felt very sort of shallow and lacking something. It's maybe it needed its own mank to sort of tighten this one up.
1: <laughs> I don't know. Uh, it's hard to. It's hard to really. I don't know. I, I just feel like it's it's hard to review this or discuss this because there's so much, like, I, d- I don't know how to compare it. But as, like, a a a movie in itself, I mean, you... If if it didn't have Finch... Like, if we didn't know in advance it was Finch, who wrote it, I wouldn't have guessed it was him. Let's just put it that way. It's one of those movies, I can see the merit, but it's, you know, biopics are really not my thing, and this one hasn't really changed my mind a lot. <laughs> There's, you know, there's no doubt. Everybody did a really great job. All the cast was really good. I, I feel like one of the characters was a little over, but um, I think the Orson Welles character was a bit annoying. <laughs> uh, but I'm not sure whether it was meant to be annoying. Um, well, I mean, the Tom
0: Burke's Orson Welles is so forgettable in this film, despite him obviously being this key figure in the whole. The whole screenwriting process I mean Mank was originally supposed to have 90 days to write the script and Wells cuts him down to 60 so that they can noodle around with the screenplay and you've got this he's this constant presence in the background there's this like looming deadline that Mank has to get the work done I mean he's obviously at the time he's off working on Hearts of Darkness the Joseph Conrad adaptation Mm -hmm. and it's sort of like you know he's getting closer and closer to finishing that and you know that as soon as he finishes that he's going to come looking for Mankin, so that they can sort of move on to doing Citizen Kane which is going to be sort of grand opius yeah I just while the the voice is kind of there because Wells has got such a very distinct voice I mean obviously he was the golden boy of radio making his sort of like move into into film Um, and I think anyone who's heard like the like the the Worlds broadcast or um seen Transforms the movie <laughs> will know what sort of that iconic voice is. Um and I just don't think that Tom Beck really sort of he's got the look that I can see young awesome worlds in him, but I just didn't quite get the voice. It was it was just missing it slightly, which is the more frustrating I guess than if he'd missed it completely. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, even outside like the main players here, there's a lot of interesting like um, other sort of people pop up. I mean, such as like um, like his is it his his brother or is it his nephew? Brother. His brother Joseph, um, who's obviously making his start in in as a screenwriter, and then we've obviously got um, the um, director who's called up to make the fake. Reels um, to sort of like swing the political vote, and uh, the guilty feels of like um, creating these films and the effect that they have on the the election. So there's these interesting sides outside of like outside of Hurst's sort of like in a circle that uh, Mank finds himself in, and certainly seeing the games that uh, Mank is trying to to play within the within the circle, and you know trying to. Pull strings by using Marion to uh to to throw some weight around with the studio heads and things like that when he you know, he tries to get these films withdrawn and stuff is all kind of interesting, but it just I think it's just in that second hour, it just becomes all really sort of heavy and overly confusing and you just feel that it needed a little more room to breathe. I'm not saying make it longer, but you know, trim something out. We didn't have to yeah. cover everything in excruciating detail this period. <laughs>
1: I just felt like it wasn't really, um, it wasn't really, I think it lacked a bit of focus. I think that was the main thing um, in execution, right? Because, you know, what are you, what are you trying to say, right? You're trying to portray this, this time. Um, But is it, are they trying to portray the time frame, um, the situation of this screenplay about this uncredited screenwriter who's, you know, being, you know, not, uh, who, who isn't credited enough, at least. Or is it about the show business? Which seems to be what, at least from my understanding, what this film seems to be anchored on the most. But at the same time, you know, you have this you have this whole um, election thing going on at the same time, which I felt like it, it kind of just pops up here and there just to remind you <laughs> what's going on. But then it's, you know, being someone that's not entirely into politics, I also didn't really feel like that invested because every time that would pop up, it would be that sort of thing. Oh, you know, this person is uh, trying to run for whatever. And then they'd have some kind of whatever bet over who's going to win by how much or whatever. And then, you, you know, you have all these random things and you're just like, but does this really contribute to the story as a whole because that's what i usually think when movies start hitting in that 2 hour range you start having questions about execution um you start having you know like what because i'm i'm going to be honest a lot of times when you hit 2 hours most films tend to feel a little draggy here and there yeah. you know there's there's some moments which don't really hold up in execution um
0: you say that, but now with the fact that most, like, Marvel movies hit around the three-hour mark, I mean, two hours doesn't yeah, seem too I bad. Yeah, I mean,
1: unless, unless you're forced to sit in a theater to watch a Marvel movie, right? Like, you choose this, and not force, but like you choose to sit in a theater to watch a Marvel movie, yeah. which <laughs> I haven't done since Guardians of the Galaxy or something. Uh, I mean, a lot of times I wouldn't go to that extent, right? I mean, I... I I would watch one, and then I probably you know the joy of watching on at home is that you can shut it off whenever you want and start it back up whenever you want.
0: You can so. yeah, you can tend do the mini series uh, with it. Can you'd like uh, when you look at Scorsese's The Irishman, which is like three plus hours long? Um, there was actual articles when it came out of like how to turn it into its own mini series. It's all like oh, cut it off at this point, and then <laughs> cut it off at this point, and I think. Uh, Certainly for myself, who rarely gets three hours to sit down and watch a film, much less can sit on a couch for three hours without falling asleep, it's sometimes good to be able to have the option to break it up. Rather than if I if I saw this in a cinema, I don't know if I would, I would have followed this as well, without being able to get those breaks in. So, but I mean, can you see yourself returning to this one now that you've seen it once?
1: But that's the problem, right? Like a part of me is like, you know, I really should watch Citizen Kane. <laughs> probably should have watched it before i watched this Mm. (laughs) but then you're kind of like i don't know it's a biopic is there really that much more to see um do i really want to um i think for me it's not something i'd like to go back to because mostly like i'm a person that kind of veers away from drama and biopics a lot uh it's it's really not my first choice um Unless it's you know a biopic about someone I care about, and I don't know who in this world I would really care to see a biopic about. Um, <laughs> sounds really weird, but <laughs> it sounds like I really don't care. I'm very ignorant about the world, but it's not. It's it's really just cinema for me is entertainment, and when you watch a biopic, a lot of times it's not entertainment. It's supposed to educate you.
0: Yeah.
1: And. The thing is, my issue with Mank is that, because I don't know Citizen Kane, I feel like we're watching it from the perspective of the entertainment level. And, well, you know, entertainment level. I guess if you compare it with other Fincher movies, it's quite a step down. But then, at the same time, if you think about it, there is a lot of merit to how it's done, the visuals, the music, um, the casting, the acting even. Everything's really, really on point. But when you put it at the end of the day, it's it's not something I want to go back to just because it's a biopic. And and even if I know about these people, it's not like we don't know how dirty behind the scenes of Hollywood are. Right. It's not it's not like a news story that we haven't heard about, but it's about a screenwriter. Um, And and, you know, I mean, there's a lot of people in this world who are uncredited for their great work. And we all, that these people always, you know, kind of, you know, different groups of people or whatever, you know, all pop up every once in a while and we hear news about it. So, you know, <laughs> it, I, I just don't know. I, are you going to go back and watch Maybe it?
0: Maybe at some point. I don't, as I said, I need some time away from it. And certainly when I look at the Fincher filmography, um, it's not as bad as Benjamin Button. I'll give it that much. It's also an hour yeah. shorter than Benjamin Button, which also works in its advantage. Um, but yeah there's just uh, it's not a story that really engaged me in the way I really was hoping it it would when I saw that original trailer I thought it was going to be a a fun romp in sort of like 1930s, 1940s old school Hollywood but instead it tends to get so bogged down in places that it really detracts from like those more fun moments when it just has the freedom just to let dialogue flow and uh, for Fincher to play around with like his uh, cinematography and his camera work and mm-hmm. as i said when you get those moments like when we have the uh conversation we they're just walking for the zoo and stuff it's so good uh, or like when he's on the film set and it's those moments i really wish it was instead of like these deep city conspiracies about swinging electoral elections and and things like that it just felt like it um yeah i just struggled to really get into this one and, and, like, and like you said, i'd like i'd Kinda of makes me want to go and see Citizen Kane now, so I suppose it's got that going for it. But um who knows, maybe after I've seen Citizen Kane I feel like a compulsion to go back and revisit it and start drawing comparisons to these real life figures and how they played into the screenplay of uh Citizen Kane. As I say, it's not my favourite of his works to say the least, so Yeah, I
1: mean, it's not it's definitely not like like I mentioned before, it's it's really not his type of work, right? It's not the fincher that the movies at least that we appreciate no
0: it's um uh, when you consider well, it's like a six- year wait we've we've had for this film to to come out and there's always this this um sort of like concern it's like what if he came he, we wait until this time and it's a bad movie and it's sort like in part of our mind we don't want to sort of accept that it, that finch has made a bad film because we've been waiting so long for him to give us something after 2014's gone girl so I think perhaps when the dust has had a chance to settle, perhaps we won't look at this as favourably. I think it'll be a lot of a reevaluation for this film and whether it's as good as a lot of people are sort of claiming it as being at the moment. But
1: you know, I don't, I don't, I don't think it's a bad movie. Honestly, I, I really don't think. It, I think the problem. I think at least for me, I'm not saying for you. I know, but I'm saying for me. I think the problem is that there's no connection. Like I don't, I don't relate. I don't know about the backstory i don't you know i can i can say it's done well enough but at the same time um it's just not my style you know it's just not my style of film and i think as simple as that like sometimes movie watching is as direct as that <laughs> some movies work for you better than others and some movies just don't click um you know, uh i yeah you know, i i you know after this i went looking at some of the uh other reviews that's been going up and a lot of people really like this you know people a lot of these people think that um it's oscar worthy and i mean it's definitely oscar bait <laughs> type of film uh which is also probably a problem that i have because i'm usually not the type of person that likes oscar bait sort of films um it, it's just it's just something that's you know I <laughs> it's just me <laughs>
0: Um, Anything else you want to bring up on this one, Tom? Nope. Um, So, yeah, I mean, obviously at the moment, this is uh, the last film on on Fincher's slate for the moment. He has been rumoured to be working on a modern uh, day adaptation of Strangers on a Train, which would see him re-teaming up with Gillian Flynn, um, who obviously wrote Gone Girl. So, um, at the same time, his TV work for Netflix has seen uh, Man... Mindhunter. Um, it's currently been put on in indefinite hiatus after two seasons uh, while we currently eagerly await the second season of Love, Death and Robots which he obviously has been doing with Mark Miller. So it's interesting to see what, uh, what his current uh picture deal with uh, netflix is going to produce this obviously being the first of that contract so i'm eager to uh see what uh else comes of this and certainly in these times where we look at hbo max have uh, done the deal with warner to pick up their whole 20 2021 uh, release schedule. Now we got Netflix who are signing directors such as Scorsese and Fincher to do projects for themselves, and we've also seen like Ridley Scott do be signed on to uh, do Raised by Wolves for HBO Max. So I think going into twenty twenty one, it's going to be very interesting to see how all the landscape sort of changes uh, for, for cinematography so and, well, cinema releases, and certainly to see where Fincher goes next, uh, given such creative freedom that Netflix apparently is currently allowing him, um, especially when we compare it to the struggles he had with his earlier films to get those made. So it's going to be... Uh, it, it'll be interesting to see where he goes next. Hopefully something darker. That's what I hope. Mm-hmm. Um... Should we wrap this one up, Lincoln? Come. Cool. Yes. Um, but this brings us into another edition of Movies and Tea. Thank you as always for listening. If you want to check out our full archive of episodes, you can do it at And on there as well, you can find our other pieces of writing. We've got our film school on there. We also have our Friday Film Club, where each Friday myself and Kim both pick a film to recommend and put it together into one wonderful double feature. Sometimes there's a theme, sometimes there's not. Either way, it's a chance for us to explore more of the films that we love and to share them with you. You can follow us both on Facebook and Instagram. And wherever you happen to listen to us, please do hit the like and subscribe button maybe leave us a review as it all helps raise the profile of the show thank you again for listening and thank you to my co-host kim and we will be back again soon um so hopefully you can join us uh, for our next jaunt into movie watching but until then good night